This is the Valarian Perspective. Exploring work, leadership, and value in an uncertain world. Welcome. I'm Ben Carsage. I'm Chris Vaughn. I'm Aaron Smith. Let's get rolling. Today, we wanted to take some time to talk about something we're probably going to be referencing quite a bit moving forward and chatting about, which is the idea of incentive, uh, particularly in a work context, but it can happen anywhere where human beings are interacting with each other. So, and what I mean by incentive is like a lot of like corporate people or, or people that are thinking through a, a, a work context or a job context hear that and they go like, oh, incentive, like how much you pay people or what the benefits are. Actually, we're not referring to any of that stuff. When we talk about incentive, we're particularly discussing how our behaviors and what things, what behaviors we reward and what behaviors we punish when we're in a group or as leaders, when we're working with subordinates or whatever, and how those impact the prevailing behaviors within the group. So a good example is like, I'll just make up right now as if, um, somebody uh, is you know, really positive in the workplace and I constantly will reward that person as a leader. Um, I'm rewarding po- a sense of positivity and there's likely to be more positive behavior that happens over time. That's kind of a, a small example, but just so- something simple. And, and I'm, gonna, I'm gonna kick in just around that, uh, almost probably a teaser to something we'll, we'll talk about at some point in the future around leadership, which is one of the, f- one of the fundamental roles of leadership that I see is to create healthy incentives that drive behaviors to be more and more positive for the organization uh, and less and less negative over time. So basically incentivize that which is uh, helpful and good and disincentivize that which is not. Um, So again, that's a little teaser. Again, we'll probably talk about that at some point in the future. Um, but that's, I think, one of the reasons we want to talk about incentives is because it is such a big part of being a leader, um, and it's often simplified down to income or created as, um, I don't know, not even considered part of your job, really, not even something that you're, you're that focused on. You're focused on, we just got to get this thing done um, or something like that, and you can miss the, the behaviors that you're creating when you go about doing that, um, sometimes. So, yeah. And we wanted, we wanted to, to discuss this through telling of stories because, um, hopefully these, some of these stories resonate, but, and there's a lot of them and we'll see how many of we, how many of them we can get through. Um, but I actually want to start off with one that is one that is pretty simple and probably is going to feel relatively familiar in the type of context that it is to most people here who have ever had a job and a boss. Um, but I think one thing that it illustrates too, is that a lot of incentives that we create for each other are hidden and we tend to view incentives as overt. Like we tend to view incentives as something that's sort of like in the cake mix. Like, you know, we want people to behave like this. And so we celebrate these cultural things or, you know, we're at Amazon and we have our five principles written on the wall or like whatever the hell it is. We tend to, I think, take for granted that our incentives are out in the open. And the reality is, is that I think especially Ben and I have found this as we've talked about this and this is what I've experienced throughout my career. Most incentives are actually quite stealthy. They're hidden. 
And one of the reasons why is because sometimes incentives are created just by us as individuals. So a story that uh, I, that comes to mind is a good friend of mine um, went to work at another video game company about you know four or five years ago, and um, he one of the things he did as a leader in his space was he you know he really went in and he got to know all the team members. He wanted to get on the ground and he was he was like a director level guy. He wanted to get in on the ground level and see what was actually happening, hear the concerns of the team and really sort of start to construct an autonomous culture where the team could feel more ownership over their work and they could they felt like they had a hand in, you know, what they were committing to and how much and he felt like through building this kind of like independent autonomous organization where the team was invested and felt like they had a say that they their work would be more effective and they'd solve solve more problems closer to the ground level. Um, and they ended up doing this like offsite basically, where they, you know, did they kind of laid out their full like eight month or ten month project or whatever. They did a bunch of estimation in their groups, like how long are each of the individual work pieces gonna take, and the team kind of came together and they organized everything and they planned the day out and they executed together as a group quite independently of their leaders. The leaders were kind of there more as facilitators. And what's interesting is when those estimates were presented to a VP who had a background in in development, the VP's immediate reaction was like, these estimates are unacceptable. They're too long. I want the team to go estimate again, and I want it to be like half this much or less. And this is this is um, this is a really interesting kind of inflection point. And and he was super confused and and was shocked that the VP kind of had this reaction. But this is like a really common reaction, and 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 it's easy to look at the VP in that situation and be like, oh, this guy's horrible. You know, look at what he's doing. Um, and there is an impact of his actions on how that team's going to operate from henceforth. So if you then go back to the team and you say, sorry, guys, I know you put a bunch of effort into this. I know you worked for this. I know you, you know, thoughtfully tried to estimate all of this work and figure out how long this is going to take. But I'm telling you, whatever you think it's going to take, I need that to be in half. Now what you've done is you've, you've told the team boldface, hey, look, I value your autonomy as long as I get the answer that I want. But if I don't get the answer that I want, I don't value your autonomy anymore. And the moment that you give me an answer I don't want, I'm now going to override you and I'm going to tell you what you're going to do. And I'm going to tell you what the answer is. So at a high level, one of the things I find so interesting about this story is that there are so many organizations out there who swear up and down that they want to go in a direction where teams and individuals are more autonomous. Like I want people to make their own decisions. I want to trust them to make their own decisions. But all it takes is one senior leader making one call like this and you can wipe out a systemic culture of autonomy in a snap of your fingers. And that's the power of incentive. Because I can guarantee being on that team, if I were a producer on that team, I'd be really frustrated because I'd be like, you know what, we went to all this effort to put all this together and the team got really emotionally invested and they created their answers from this. And we basically came back and told them, no, your answers are not good enough. So now they're going to be next time we tell them to go do this exercise. They're probably going to be more in the mindset of like, you know what, just tell me what you want. 
Give me the answer yep. you want up front and then I'll just figure out a way to get you that answer. There's no sense in me going through this exhaustive exercise and getting all excited about this and doing all the footwork if you have a specific thing in your mind that you want anyway. And what's funny is that leader in the short term that's just getting fed the answer that they want might actually think that things are going pretty well in the first two months, the first four months, the first six months, and then all of a sudden the reality comes in. And the reality becomes apparent that there were some real estimates under the surface there that were being sort of swept under the rug because what everyone was doing was just giving me the answer that I wanted as the VP. And this there's, is this is the danger of, of this kind of thinking. And um, yeah, Ben, go ahead. There's there's a um, it's when you look at that, there's so many layers you can look at the incentives. Like what were the incentives that the VP was under? Right. What were the constraints that he may have known about? Were they told to the rest of the team? Did they understand um, what his goal was and why he was trying to go there. Um, maybe his bonus was based on if something was done by a particular time. And again, these incentives are operating at all these different levels. They're driving so many different behaviors. And, and a story I had when you were saying this is, I remember when I was working on the Summoner's Rift update, um, and I was young, and I would say I was uh, much foolisher than I am today. Um, but I was very insistent for some amount of time that like I can't estimate this work the variance is too high like we don't have any consistency in the output um, there's no way I can give you anything that that gives you an approximate of when this is going to be done and I remember um, and I think appropriately so there were a lot of people that were like that's unacceptable um, you have to you have to give us an answer and I was like no 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 you can't it's too hard anything I give you is going to be wrong and all this different stuff and it was actually an inflection point in my career when I realized, because there was so much pressure, like, look, I don't need it to be tomorrow. I just need you to give me something so we can understand approximately where we're at. Um, and eventually I went and I did the work and I figured out a way um, with the help of some other people, um, a great product owner, uh, like engaged developers on the team. And we went and we did that same type of exercise. We went and we estimated out the whole thing. And what was funny is a couple of things happened after we estimated it. Um, one, a lot of people said my, the estimate was wrong. Um, but they didn't, they, they were like, I don't believe it. I think we're going to be done sooner than that. And I was like, okay, if the data starts showing that, at least now we'll know. Um, but they didn't tell me I had to go faster. They didn't tell me I had to get the team moving more rapidly. They said, I think it can be done faster. And there's an interesting thing that happened there where there, there is something that a leader can do, which is create urgency and, and put some amount of like healthy pressure to drive creativity, to drive innovation that might allow you to get somewhere sooner. And I think that that was done in a good way. Um, in that example where I had, I was receiving like, a, <laughs> I had to go do something I said I couldn't do. I ended up being able to do it. And then they were like, by the way, could we get it done faster? And it kept it in my mind, but they also trusted the fact that when I gave them those numbers and when they started like playing out over time, I, I ended up being pretty accurate. I like was, I mean, a, a year out, I was about a month off. Um, so I was pretty accurate for what the project and where it was trying to go. Um, and that was, there was a lot of uncertainty in that time period as well. Um, yeah, there's 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 some one thing I want to touch on too. It's like again, we're talking about um, organizational incentives, and we're talking about the way leaders can influence other leaders, or like what is my boss asking for me? 
Um, what am I asking from my subordinates? You know, what are you asking from your boss? You know, these things can all drive incentives, but there's other things that can drive incentives too. Like we all have insecurities. We all have um, behavioral traits that cause us to react to certain kinds of stimulus in certain ways. Um, like an example for, I can actually give an example about myself um, in a second, but um, I've often seen, especially in the software space, a lot of leaders come from backgrounds where they were once implementers. And so, um, especially when you're an engineer or you're an artist or something like that, and you've really moved up into a leadership position, um, a lot of your, 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 your sort of tendencies can be very detail oriented. And um, this is actually one of the most consistent incentive problems I see mid-level managers and senior leaders make as they move into those roles is that they tend to be almost too detail-oriented. And there tends to be a celebration higher up the ladder in detail orientation. And it's not to mm. say that being detail-oriented is bad, but it is to say that if you're running an organization of 200 people and your expectation is that you should know the nuances of this technical approach or that technical approach or why this specific solution was chosen over that specific solution or uh, be able to speak to the nitty gritty of what each team member is working on across your 200 person organization. What you've now done is you, we can have a whole separate conversation about whether that's a, an effective strategy of scale. It's probably not. But uh, what I'm speaking to specifically is when that leader, that leader over that 200 person organization feels that they need to know the details, now all of a sudden what they're doing is they're subconsciously training all the leaders underneath them to pipe those details up so mm -hmm. that they have access to all that information. And so now you can say, again, I want an autonomous organization. You can say, again, I trust you guys to make the decisions, but if I'm asking you if I, if I am asking somebody two layers below me to provide me with all of the same specific data that they have access to so that I can essentially check their work on all their decisions, then it doesn't really matter what I say my values are because my behavior is incentivizing a different set of principles, yeah. a different set of yeah. behaviors. And, there's, and so there's that, a... that's, that's, something, that's something too. It's like you know being aware of your own, your own instincts and your own behavioral patterns and, and where you feel insecure, because if you feel insecure as a leader, we all have natural coping mechanisms that we go to. And next thing we know, we're now incentivizing the people underneath us to fill our gaps instead of go the direction that we actually want to, the principled direction that we want to go. Yeah. In, in the example I gave, actually, the, my insecurity was I didn't want to be wrong. And that was really why I, wasn't, I didn't want to give anybody an estimate. I was really unsure. And so rather than even do the work of creating a project plan that tried to capture what work was going on and when I thought it would be done, who was the long tail and all these different things. I was literally like, well, if I can excuse the fact that there is high variance and that there is a lot of unpredictability and we're not really sure and all these different things, then I never have to worry about being wrong. And, and again, I, I was incentivized by that internal structure. Related to what you were talking about in leaders and software organizations, we've talked about the difference between the question, um, and asking the right question is important. Ask the question that matters. When will you be done versus what can you get done in the next month? Um, because if you ask a group of people the first question and then you second guess their answer, it's probably because you should have asked them the second question. You should have asked them, look, there's a deadline or something needs to be done by in two months. 
And if you know that, let them know that when you ask them to estimate, hey, I want this done in two months. Is that possible? Um, because then you're going to get a much more direct answer. And a lot of times in the interest of autonomy and, and in the interest of trying to like, well, I wanted them to come to the conclusion. Um, yes, you wanted them to come to the conclusion on their own to go figure that out. But really, you only wanted them to come to the conclusion on their own if they came to the conclusion that you were comfortable with. And that's where if you need something done in two months, say you need something done in two months. And is it possible? Um, or what can they get done in two months? Instead of saying, well, why don't you guys go take some time and estimate it? And then if they come back and they say it's going to take us six months and you're like, that's unacceptable. You just burned a lot of credibility and a lot of trust. Um, they do they do not feel trusted now. Um, and it was because you didn't actually let them know what you needed. And that created a for them. They were they were thinking about it in the wrong way and you could have helped. And now, again, you've incentivized the next time you ask them to go estimate something or the next time you want to engage with them about when something is going to be done. You see, I mean, we've talked about it. We talk about it when we do training. How often do people completely and outrageously over buffer things because they're so worried about what's going to happen with the estimates they provide. You know, take the estimates and multiply them. I mean, the worst I've ever heard was someone who said that they were in an organization that said, take whatever estimate you have and multiply it by seven. And he was like, seven? Like, I'm com I'm comfortable with two and three, and we should already be asking ourselves, why are we comfortable with two or three? But like seven, and, they, and the people were just like, no, 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 just just trust us, seven. Um, again, you, you, as the leaders in an organization asking for estimates and then interacting with the estimates you're given, you create that behavior when you respond to those estimates in a way that doesn't show that you trust the people that you're interacting with. Um, yeah, and again, <clears throat> a lot of this does come, I mean, I, I use the term punishment. It sounds like such a harsh, uh, I, would, I would rather use the term disincentivize. But it's like, if, you, if you're a leader and you're working with your team, what behaviors do you tend to reward and what behaviors do you tend to punish or what behaviors do you tend to disincentivize? Like what, what kind of behavior would cause you to step out and look, and look at one of your teammates and be like, Hey, that's not okay. My expectations are something else other than this or to say, Hey, that's a great job because that's, uh, if you can analyze what those things are and what, what types of behaviors land in each respective bucket, you're on to the incentive structure that you've created in your space. And then back to the, the back to the point Ben made earlier, it's also like being aware of your own incentives. You know, we've all been frustrated where we seem to think that we're focusing on the right thing or we seem to focus on results and our boss seems to be interested in something else. And uh, that, that, that dissonance can be challenging. It can be frustrating at times, especially if it's something where you're like, hey, look, I'm trying to deliver results here and I feel like you're trying to focus me on politics or something else like that. Um, being aware of, of those gaps and in incentive is super important because you don't want to be in a situation where you're being punished or rewarded for stuff that you don't agree with either. Um, right. And your boss, your boss may not even be aware that he or she is creating those incentive incentives for you. Um, and so getting those things out in the open and be like, Hey, you seem to, you seem to celebrate me for these kinds of things. Why don't you also celebrate me for those kinds of things? Like these are great conversations to have. Um, and, uh, might actually bring some awareness to them that they didn't have before. Yeah. Do you want to jump to another example? Yeah, definitely. Let's, um, let's actually, so we, we have a lot of these that are in a corporate context. 
Um, let's go into your uh, uh, your Afghanistan uh, example because I think that's one like most people can relate to on a high level, and I think it really illustrates how sort of off we can be when our incentives are not consistent with like the reality of a culture. Yeah, and and I'll I'll caveat this one up front with. Um, so I, just so people are aware, I was in the military. I spent four years in the army as an officer. Um, I d- was deployed to Afghanistan for one year. Um, and while, while we were there, it was, you know, a fairly normal deployment, um, for, for the role I was in as doing a logistics role. Um, and, uh, there was a, a, the yearly election was taking place in Afghanistan. So again, I want to caveat this with, I'm not a political scientist. I'm not like some expert in, uh, Afghan culture as compared to other cultures around the world or anything like that. But I'm going to give you some of what I observed and some of the articles that I read post the, the election and, and things like that. Um, and there's this interesting thing where it was very important when we went into Afghanistan, like the elections were very important. Everybody knew they were very important. And I would argue that we, we didn't know exactly why, um, but we knew that they were very important. And there was a lot of work that we were going to do to make sure that the Voting sites were secure so that people were safe because um, the insurgents wanted to disrupt the elections and they wanted to threaten them so that they didn't happen. And it was all under this idea that that um, when I when I like was like why why is why are we doing elections? It was like well because democracy right we want to bring democracy to Afghanistan. And when I think about democracy, there's so much that undergirds it being successful that may not have been true in Afghanistan at that time. Um, There wasn't actually infrastructure set up for elections to be effective. Um, There is a different relationship to the idea of, I mean, I'll I'll say it in a blunt way. I'll say it as corruption, Um, but there it's, it's, it's viewed differently. There are cultural differences about how you view someone paying for something that maybe might not be above board. And, and again, from a Western perspective, we might look at that as very harshly and be like, that's not how you're supposed to do things. Just like democracy is how you're supposed to do things, but we make a bunch of assumptions. And so then we, we roll in there and we say, well, you guys are Afghanistan. We're going to set up a democracy. You guys are going to vote. And we set it up and we, were they ready for that? And what happened? Because I think they weren't. And there were all these stories that came out after where um, you would ask someone, uh, they would ask a, like an, an Afghan person, oh, you, you voted. And they were like, yes, I'm really proud I voted. And they're like, who did you vote for? And they were like, I don't know. I can't read. And, and it's like, but you still voted. They still went in. They still, you know, um, filled out something. And then they didn't even know who they voted for, but they were proud to have voted. And, it was because we told them they were supposed to be proud, um, and that like that's how that's what you know modern democracies do is they go and vote. Everybody votes. And there was another person. He was um, underage, who he wasn't legally able to vote, and I think he voted something like nine times. He, um, and he was really really happy because he'd voted nine times. He'd really outdone himself in his civic duty and in and engaging with democracy. And it was again like. It's easy to look, and I, and I really, I don't want this to be a, oh, those silly people. Like, th- that is, a, that is a, a unique culture that had a way of living in the world and operating. 
it doesn't match what we're used to. It doesn't match the way that we operate in the Western world. And we went in, and I think that the incentive that we had was largely political. We had a, a multinational organization that had gone in, had basically, you know, militarily conquered a nation um, in order to drive the old rulers, the Taliban, out of power. And then we had a political obligation or political incentive um, to set up democracy as quickly as possible, whether they could, that was made sense, whether that was something that was useful, whether that was something that would work at all, we had to do it. Um, and I, I think what you saw was all these sort of almost silly outcomes, as well as a lot of resources spent trying to build out some basic infrastructure. There are huge swaths of Afghanistan that are, couldn't even really reasonably participate in the election due to terrain and uh, lack of road networks and, and maybe just disinterest. Um, and, and it was like, but we have to do it. We have to, we have to set up democracy. Um, so that, that's sort of the story. That's how I think about that. And, and I think actually again, that, that one has, that one has a lot of, I think, parallels coming back to the corporate world as well. Um, what, I think one of the things I really love about this story when you talk about it is that um, do democracy is not really a clear outcome. It's, you can, it sort of implies a lot of things that are good, that are actually noble and, and, and uh, to, to be honest, like from our Western perspective, very benevolent actually, but like it implies them at most. And that, I think that's the point you're, you're, you're making. It's the same thing when we were like, you know what? It's like when, when leaders get together at a software company, like, you know what we need to do? We need to do that agile thing that everyone's talking about, or we need to, we need to have a better process. And it's like, why? Like, like, why do you want that? And, and what, what changes do you expect to happen in the culture and the behaviors of people? Because, um, I think that when you start talking about culture and behaviors, you're really talking about the secret sauce of what drives meaningful results within an organization. Um, you can absolutely follow a process flawlessly and have no discernible meaningful results at all. Like we've all seen mm -hmm. that example. We've all seen that time and time again, example mm -hmm. after example. Um, and I think that that's, that's what's so interesting. Again, it's like, um, it's not just what, uh, incentivizing good behavior or bad behavior. It's also where, what types of things are you incentivizing? Like, are you incentivizing? I've seen this so many times. This, th this is, this is one. It's like, I don't even have to go into it. Cause anybody who's listening to this has been through this situation. If they had a job for more than three years where the boss comes in and is like, we're going to do this new process now. And, and, you know, <laughs> Uh, don't expect him to explain what the outcome he's he's going for is or um, don't expect her to explain like why she all of a sudden decided that this was important. Like just do the things and do them right according to the document or manual or book uh, or training course or whatever. And then now we're th those are just things we do now. And then, you know, everybody, including the leaders, the, the people are all frustrated because they never knew why they were doing it. it. Instructions weren't necessarily clear. They don't know how to assess how successful they've been because they don't actually know what they were looking for on the other end of the pipe. And then the leaders are scratching their heads like, well, we did the new process thing, but it doesn't seem to really be working. 
And it's just like, to me, this is yet again, another great example of these. We do this all the time as humans. I just think it's hilarious uh, where we, we think that the, uh, that all these things um, are ends unto themselves, these things we incentivize. But uh, what, what's really important is like, what, what do you want to see? What change do you want to see? And how do you incentivize that? And then, and then allow the process to be a tool towards that, right? I'm going to jump in and, and say something along those lines, Aaron, just to give you another anecdote from my last corporate gig. Same exact scenario you described. Boss walked in one day, we're changing our process. We're going to do it this way. And here's what we need. And here's when we need it by. And I was on a that particular point. I was, I was leading a team of three. And we looked at one another and said, this isn't going to work. We're not going to use this process because our the stakeholder in our project was an external, apart from the company, they were an external stakeholder that was elsewhere. And we knew that using this internal process was not going to give the stakeholder the results they needed. So not we basically ignored the boss and the VP and we did our own thing. And they never checked up on the process. All they kept checking in on was the results we were getting. And we were getting the results week after week. We were doing what we needed to do. After about six months, the boss checked in with the process and realized we weren't doing anything remotely close to the piece of paper we were handed with the SOP, with the standard operating procedure on it. We ignored that entirely, did our own thing. And we got nailed and yelled at pretty severely because we weren't doing the process, even though the client was was perfectly happy. The stakeholder was was thrilled with what we were doing, but we didn't do it internally the way they wanted. Why? What was our incentive? Our incentive was not to follow the boss. It was the it was to please the stakeholder, get the client happy. That was all that mattered to us. How we got there, according to this piece of paper that had an irrelevant process on it, just did didn't help anyone. You know, other and, teams. Uh, uh, just to just yeah. to put a button on that. Other teams did follow the process and didn't get the results they wanted to, but they were following the process. And that's all that mattered to this, this middle management crew. And I just kept screaming that the process is broken. The process is broken and it fell on deaf ears. So Aaron, exactly what you described. And, and they're like thinking about that, uh, play that out over time. If you don't address that, what you created didn't have the effect you wanted, then over time, what you're going to develop is, again, I'm going to come back to lack of trust, lack of trust between your team and that middle management layer. And over time, let's say you get fired eventually for not adhering to the process, even though you're demonstrating the results that you want. And maybe they have some really good reason that they've just never told you about why they needed to use that process. Right. Like there was some compliance regular. I'm not saying this is happening in your situation, but there's some compliance board somewhere that said we have to do this or we're going to get sued by somebody or other for all of our company's net worth. They never tell you that or something like something's going on. Right. Again, everybody has their incentives all the way up and down. And but now you've broken trust. And if they do something, if they do start punishing you over time, you're going to go, okay, how do I make it seem like I'm following the process? And now you get very jaded buy-in, I'll call it, to a process where you're sort of like at a surface level, you're like, okay, we'll do it. Um, sure. Yeah. No, don't worry. We're doing the process. Here's the report from the process that you wanted. And, and again, everybody's like, okay, good. And what you realize is that guess what you've incentivized. You haven't incentivized a process. You haven't incentivized a healthy process. You may not even know what a healthy process is. You've incentivized somebody submitting a report that you wanted that makes you feel good. Or maybe that, that shows that you are operating in compliance with whatever it is that the, the layer above needed. 
to me, again, lack of trust, lack of communication, and both get worse over time. Well, and also even scarier than that, frankly, is divorcing the mentality of the team, slowly prying the mentality of the team away from actual results. Mm-hmm. Because it, yeah. it's it's like, thank God in a way, right, Chris, that your team seemingly cared more about meeting the needs of the customer than following your boss's process advice. Um, and but but like there's a world where, again, the boss, you know, wrenches you out of that mentality and says, I'm going to fire all of you unless you do the things I'm saying. And then best case scenario, you guys figure out a way to juggle both incentives. Worst case scenario or actually not even worst case, pretty much any other scenario is you guys go, well, you know, we all like to get paid because at the end of the day, that's why we're here. And so we're just going to do what he says. And you know what, if the customer doesn't get what they need anymore, then that's fine. Um, that's that, that I think is the real tragedy with, with this stuff is like when people walk around and feel good because they're meeting those incentives, when in reality, those incentives are taking away from actual success. So it's, it's, again, it's just like, you have to drive awareness around what, what are the incentives that you're setting as a leader and then what outcomes are coming out of those behaviors? Because if those outcomes are bad or not good, um, you're responsible for that. I, I kind of want to segue into sprint reports. Yeah, it's a good one. I think it's related to this. Yeah. Um, in this, and it, this one actually is good too because we, we, we're going to – we have – potential topics about standardized testing and all this stuff. These are great incentive stories and the sprint reports uh, story is very on, on the nose there. So, yeah. So there was a time, um, uh, it was right after I'd gotten to riot and Aaron had been there for a bit, but there was a, a thing called a sprint report. The idea had been that every team at riot, um, this wasn't nearly as true as, um, that had been hoped, which is actually a good thing had, converted to scrum and we were doing sprints um and there was at the end of every sprint the scrum master uh usually some poor assistant or associate producer such as myself or aaron had to type up a sprint report that followed a particular format about here's what we'd set out to do um here's what we got done did we pass or fail the sprint here's velocity and a a set of other things um, now, I, for, I, I want to first say, having some way of understanding, hey, did we get done what we were trying to get done? Um, like, that's a really good question and one that organizations should ask and, and teams should ask. And you should figure out a way to, like, value the fact that, like, reflect on are we producing value and are we producing the value that we thought we were producing and reproducing at the rate that we wanted to produce it? Because if you never, ever do that... Um, I guarantee you, you're you're not, um, and and you because it takes reflection and learning and understanding and, and continuous improvement. I would argue to get to the point where an organization of any size is able to reliably deliver something. The way that the sprint report played out was that at the end of your sprint, you had to type this thing up, and you said either we either passed or we failed. And if you failed, everybody was like, it's totally okay to fail. Everybody would say that. And this is, again, this is where there's a difference between the explicit and the implicit 
um, behaviors or incentives or messages that you're getting. Um, because ex like explicit message was like, it's okay, just say whatever happened, totally okay. It's We just want your honest opinion. And again, I think there's a lot of health in that explicit message. However, implicitly, everybody knew that if you failed, you know, maybe more than 50% of the time or you failed a few times in a row, you started getting a bunch of questions. And again, I want to say, it's not necessarily that that's wrong, but what were they asking? Um, and what were they asking and who were they asking it to? Because right. another thing is, it's like, it's just yes. as viable to ask the folks that passed, what did you do that made you pass? Like from a celebratory tone. But if the only place your attention goes is like a giant eye of Sauron-esque laser towards anybody who had a red fail letter on their on their sprint report, it be quickly, very quickly becomes an unpleasant thing to be the guy or gal who puts the red letter F on your sprint report. And you might actually start finding ways to fudge it a little bit and get a green pass instead, just because you don't want to deal with all that negative attention. And especially if that attention is coming from really scary people like the president of the company and stuff like that. Again, all very well-intentioned, all well-meaning. In fact, one of my favorite things about the executives at Riot were, were how engaged they wanted to be and involved they wanted to be in day-to-day. -day. Like they took it upon themselves to be involved. They weren't these like yep. abstractions floating around somewhere that nobody knew. But like it, you know, if you're a, an associate or assistant producer, it was a really scary thing to just have this flood of senior people coming onto your sprint report comments on email all of a sudden just being like, well, what happened here? And this is the third time you failed. And what is this? And um, it was uh, something that, you know, again, quickly can be an incentive that you may not want, right? Like in your yeah. mind, you're thinking, well, we need to figure out what went wrong here. And that, that, but what you're incentivizing is like, don't be the guy or gal who has an F on your report, you know? And, and this, what you saw is exactly what you said. The number of times people would redefine what the sprint goal was the Friday the sprint was supposed to be done, or maybe the Thursday if they were really looking ahead. And then they'd just be like, oh, look, we got it all done. You know, we're like, and and it was this constant moving Change of the goalposts. Change the goalposts at the last minute, yeah. Exactly, like just, just shift them, just move those down a little bit. And uh, now look, see, we made it. And, and now I can be green on my sprint report. And don't worry, we talked with the product owner and they're on board because why are they on board? Well, they're on board because they don't want to get the email either. <laughs> um, you know, like, again, you're, you're incentivizing and what you're actually incentivizing is the lack of, re of valuable reflection in the interests of a sort of, I don't want the eye of Sauron looking at me. And actually, Aaron, you bring up something really, really cool here, um, which is as humans, we tend to see problems more than we like when things are going well we tend to think that's the way it's supposed to be i don't know why this is true because i've never met anybody whose life has just endlessly gone from well from good thing to good thing to good thing almost everybody i think maybe everybody ever has always been like yeah there were then there was a lot of suffering and pain in my life and then there was more and then this was hard and then this was hard but for some reason when everything is going well and th there's psychological reasons for this but when everything's going well we don't detect anomaly but when there's problems, we do. And what that means is that when you are the leader in that situation, you get zoomed in to the problems because they're the they're the anomalies. The team that's green, you're like, I don't even need to read that report because they, they're clearly doing fine. Um, but this team that's red, ah, that one I'm going to go read. And to Aaron's point, why aren't you going and asking this team that's green, what are you doing well? How do we share that with other teams that might not be doing as well? If we can, if that makes sense. Um, 
Or maybe look at them and go like, wait, you changed all your goals in the last two days. And then not going, stop doing that. Instead going, why did you do that? How did I contribute to you doing that? Um, and so, so again, we, we will see the problems, we will see the anomalies before we will see the successes um, yeah. most often. And there's a, there's a key incentive mechanism here too that, um, again, most people who have worked in a corporate space uh, will understand, which is like data is becoming very popular now and it's like reporting metrics and, you know, like Google KPIs and like all this stuff is super hot right now. And um, I mean, I, I love this stuff as much as the next person. And like, I actually really, whenever I go and work with a team and I'm setting up a new process, I always try to think like, what are KPIs that are, are relevant? And like, what do we actually want to track? Um, but what I've actually seen more often than not, and I think this story about the sprint reports or the time box reports is, is another example of this, is like not really being super thoughtful about what it is that you're tracking. Um, is it, it's Peter Drucker, right? That which gets measured gets done. That is an incentive statement, right? Like that is a statement speaking directly to incentive. It's like the things just by measuring something, if you, if you measure a statistic across your organization and you just post it up on the wall in the main public area every single day, you've now created an incentive. You've now sent a message to everybody that that number matters and whether it's supposed to be high or low, uh, is, is that you better make sure your number is as high or low as that number or whatever it is. Right. But like we do this all the time and we don't realize this. And again, when I look at those sprint reports, actually one of the funny things about them, the most funny things about them is I look at the, the, the top line data, like the, the, the top five or six metrics in the first, like in the summary section. And I'm like, most of this shit just doesn't matter. You know, like, and, and it's funny because Again, back Ben sort of touched on this. It's like this pass fail thing was like right at the top. We passed. We failed. We passed. They passed four times in a row. And it's like, well, what does it actually mean to pass? Well, in essence, passing meant that you got all the stuff done that you said you were going to do minus anything that you added or removed during the time box. So it was completely meaningless, actually. So that's what's so funny about this is like we created the we created this meaningless incentive, and uh, and 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 so all these weird aberrant behaviors started to pop up around like, well, how do I get my thing green? Because people seem to like the green thing, right. and 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 it wasn't like, no, actually, um, we're going to incentivize you on your team's ability to take the right amount of work during the planning phase. Like not to overcommit or not to undercommit. Like that's what, and I don't know what that metric would look like, but the point I'm trying to make is that's an outcome that means something, right? Like this right. team's really good at understanding their capacity. That seems valuable because the more they understand their capacity, the more predictable they're going to be in getting their work done. Um, as opposed to, again, the, the fudging system we had over right. here with just move, playing the shell game with all the work so that we managed to fit everything into some completely arbitrary time box. And uh, so, so I just want to point out that like m what you measure and what you sort of lift up as data and statistics and KPIs and all this stuff, you're creating huge incentive just by nature of showing that out in the open. So if you're doing that, be careful about what it is that you're showing and make sure that it matters. Because if it doesn't matter, get rid of it. Just stop showing it. That's really dangerous. And I want to I want to talk really quick too because you just hit on something awesome, which is. Um, what happens if you're the, the scrum master, you're that assistant producer, that associate producer, and you're like, no, I'm not going to let my product owner redefine done at the end of a sprint because I know that's not healthy. 
for the team and I want us to have good self-reflection. Over time, you punish that person for their honesty, um, for, for accurately reflecting. Maybe that means that they fail five times in a row with a team that doesn't really know how much work they're going to get done. And so they consistently fail. And I've been, I've been the scrum master on that team before. And over time, they get pressured by their team and the product owner and the other people that see the emails like, hey, stop failing them. Right. And, and so you drive and, and if you're in that situation, you're going, well, that's what happened. OK, so do I need to just completely underestimate so that I guarantee I get stuff done? Is that what you want me to do? Because um, we can try that. Or should I keep reflecting with the team? But then I keep getting punched in the face. Um, or do I start doing what I see everybody else doing, which is fudging? on the last day of the sprint to say like, well, we didn't actually need to get this done and we did get the things that were most important according to our redefinition right now so that we can put green on our pass fail report. There's two other things. One thing you said about um, expressing, um, like when you when you put something, when you make something visible, I don't, I'm not recommending this. In, in fact, I still don't know how I feel about this. I did something again when I was a young scrum master or a dev manager or producer, whatever you want to call me at the time. I was on a team of engineers and they were horrible about coming to meetings. Uh, there was a daily stand-up, they wouldn't show up. And I did, the, I did something or I just created a spreadsheet. I had no intention of doing anything with this spreadsheet, but every day at the beginning of, this, of the meeting, the spreadsheet had all their names on it and I would just put an X if they were there or I would mark if like I put a different or I leave it blank if they weren't and it was just like a quick it was like an attendance sheet and again I'm not recommending anybody do this but what was fascinating is I told them I wasn't going to do anything with that I said look I'm just doing this to try to understand what attendance looks like the difference from when I started doing that which is like you'd have almost nobody show up um to you go like three weeks later where almost everybody's showing up on time right because I would say whether you were there, missed it, or late. And it was insane. And I never had any intention of doing it. For me, it was literally like, and again, this is something I was doing. I, I, was, I was new to the space. I was experimenting. I was trying something. Um, and I do encourage people to try something. I'm st again, I'm not sure about if this is a good thing to try. But by the end of that three weeks, everybody was there. Almost everybody was showing up on time at worst late to this meeting. Um, and it created... Um, a change in behavior, even though there was no intention of doing anything with it. And eventually I just stopped using it. Um, once everybody started showing up regularly and that became a pattern, I like got rid of it because it was like, oh, okay, cool. It seems like it's not, this isn't an issue anymore. Um, but I didn't, for me, it started off as like, I just want to understand what this looks like. And just by trying to understand what it looked like, I changed it. Um, and, and that's an important thing to note. I created an incentive. The other one I want to talk about, which is something that I would recommend some scrum masters try or um, facilitators of meetings, which is, Aaron, one of the favorite stories of you when you were a young scrum, scrum master. Um, and you couldn't get the team to not be like reporting their progress to you every day. Um, and and the, the thing you ended up doing, and I'll let you correct anything that's wrong about this, is walking into the room with a stand up with your team there and going into the corner and facing the corner and putting your head into the wall and standing there silently and having the team. Those just first couple forced, meetings were really awkward, really and, awkward. <laughs> like and pushing through that awkwardness in, in a way that that 
you know, you are so good at um, pushing through that awkwardness and and eventually the team realizing like, oh, this is what he means when he says he doesn't want us to report to him. And he's not it's not this meeting isn't for him to know the status. It's for us to talk. You you did that over time. And just by doing that again, you created an incentive and you really disincentivized a negative behavior. Um, you were very clear that, like, I don't want you reporting to me what's going on. I want you talking to each other about how the sprint is going. Um, and you you shifted how you were engaging with that team as a leader in a way that caused that outcome. And again, back to what we were talking about, about the difference between sort of um, incentives in process or incentives in uh, methodology or what, or whatever, like technical incentive incentives, there's emotional incentives too. Like there was probably a part of me that was like, felt good that the team was reporting to me when they were right. Like, well, I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm pretty important here. Look at all these guys. They all, they're telling me what they're working on. Like I'm the leader here. Yeah. Uh, it's an easy place to go, right? We love that. We love to feel there's nothing wrong with that. It's, it's, we love to feel important. We love to feel needed. We love to feel, valuable. And and one of the easiest ways to get there is to be an integral part of the machine, to know that if you weren't there, that the machine wouldn't work anymore. Like, who are they going to report to if I'm not there? You know, they don't know how to talk to each other. Got to have a scrum master or got to have a facilitator. But like the reality is, is that's actually not what's best for the team. And, 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 and I would also say it's not, not, it's not what's best for you either as a leader. Like it's, it's a great short-term shot in the arm to feel important in that meeting, but very quickly you start to feel the stress of always being needed all the time. And that feeling like, oh shit, if I'm sick next week or ever at any point, the team ceases to function if I'm not present. Right. That's no, no good. Actually, one of the best feelings of all uh, unless your manager is not incentivizing it, which is a whole separate conversation, uh, is knowing that your team can just basically operate without you. That's that's a different kind of incentive structure, and again, that's um, that's a really powerful one. So so yeah, I mean, it's again, you have to kind of check your own tendencies too, and your own needs as a human, because it's easy. I'm I do this. I'm a I'm a front of room leader. I always have been my whole career. So it's easy for me to get caught in those traps where like, oh my, oh, I'm giving the inspirational speech, or I'm up in front talking to the team and explaining things. And you know, I love to be a teacher, and this is not probably not completely unrelated. Um, but it's like it's a, it's also a dangerous path to go down, right? If you start incentivizing the groups of people around you to need you for that. Uh, you're actually doing them and yourself a disservice. So, so I think we're we're just about out of time for this podcast. Um, but I think we got through a couple of examples, talked about um, some of how we view incentives, and um, yeah, I think I think this may be something we talk about more in the future because I know we have a bunch of other cool examples. Um, but yeah, think think about that both as an individual um, working on a team, as a leader, as a senior leader in an organization. What are you incentivizing? What are you incentivized to do? And how are you responding to those things? Are they the things that are actually working towards the goal of your organization? Or are they working? Or is there a, a counter incentive that's shown up? And again, think about those things as well. It's more about the implicit incentivizations that are pre- present than the explicit ones. It's easy to put something up on a wall and say, everybody here is going to tell the truth. And then you create a sprint report that makes it really convenient and easy for everybody to fudge a little bit. Um, 
the people are going to follow that second thing because it's more about their day to day. It's a stronger incentive. It's a more local one. Um, so just and think it's, about and those it's things. it's actually what they're getting rewarded or punished for. Exactly. That, it, not, that is what they're being incentivized to do. Um, so yeah, so those are some things to think about. You've been listening to the Valarin Perspective. We'd love to hear your thoughts at perspectives at valarinconsulting.com. That's V-A-L-A-R-I-N consulting.com. Now get back to work.